Uh, let's pray together, guys. So, Father, I want to thank you um, for this day that you've, you've given us another beautiful day, Lord, and an opportunity to come um, together, Lord, and, and to open your word. And we thank you for the gift of, of your word, Father. And I pray that as we look through the text, um, that you would speak to us. You'd guide me through the text, Lord, as I seek to teach, um, and that you would really um, open our eyes to, to what it is you're, you're wanting to say to us, what it is you're trying to teach us, Lord. And Lord, and we also lift up to you, PT, Lord. We thank you for how he serves us. We thank you for the blessing that he is. And we do pray, Lord, that you would be healing him right now, Father. Um, Lord, that he would be able to rest, Father, Lord, and that he would make a quick recovery. So we do pray for him. We pray for the rest of the family, Lord. And, and even in the midst of not feeling well, Lord, that, it would be, um, that you would be with them, Lord. We know you're with them, Lord, but we pray, Lord, that they would know that truth, Father. Um, and yeah, Lord. We lift up to you all the events going on this week, from, from baptisms to worship services. Lord, we, we thank you for all the things that you're doing, not just in Shoreline, um, but across the world, Father. Um, especially this week as we remember, as, as many people gather to remember uh, the greatest event uh, in history, your death and your resurrection um, for, for us. Um, so bless our time, Lord, as we go through your word. And Lord, may it be a real precious time together, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. So, if you've been with us the last, well, actually if you've been with us any of the other Tuesdays, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Second Samuel. We've been going through the Old Testament. So, we did First Samuel and then we're coming to the end of Second Samuel. And both books primarily focus, or they focus on some other people as well, and the main kind of focuses for both books is the life of King David. Uh, David is maybe a guy that you've heard of. David and Goliath is perhaps the classic kind of story that we, that we know. But as we come to the end of David's life, which what is what we will see over the next couple of weeks. Over the next couple of weeks as we come to the end of 2 Samuel, and then we look to begin 1 Kings, which is going to be quite cool. We're going to see over these next few weeks um, the end of... David's life and um, it's kind of a great opportunity to kind of think about what his what his life what would if you if we had to sum up what David's life stood for what would we say I mean what would people say about you when you come to eventually to the end of your life what do you think you would be remembered for and sometimes you see kind of uh, when, when people do pass away and, and they're kind of buried, often there will be something inscribed on, on the gravestone. Something which kind of maybe sums up who they were or, or, what, or what they believed or what they stood for. Uh, and imagine, when you eventually come to the end of your life, what do you think you will be remembered for? And if you could write something on your own tombstone, something which summed up what it is you were kind of, your life was dedicated to, what would you write? And as I say, as we come to the end of David's life, it's a great opportunity to kind of look back and see all the things that God did through his life. Um, but one of the things which the Bible kind of brings out for us, one of the things um, that it kind of, essentially the Bible says, look, if you want to sum up David's life in one sentence, this would be it. And it says it in the book of Acts. And it's quite, it's almost like a, well, maybe not a throwaway comment, but it's tucked away. In Acts chapter 13, 22, and if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn to that. That won't be our main text, but feel free to turn to that anyway. 
And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, we read this. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all the will of God. And imagine if that was written on your tombstone. Imagine if you, when you came to the end of your life, we were known as people not after our own hearts, not after men or women's hearts or other people's hearts, but rather men and women after God's own heart. And imagine, despite all of David's failings, all of his shortcomings, this is what he is ultimately remembered for. But it isn't the only thing that he will be noted for. He's also remembered for being a man of faith. And this is kind of the aspect we're going to focus on. David, a man of faith, and how that truth encourages us also to become men and women of faith who will faithfully follow Jesus, our King and our Saviour to the very end. And for us to look at that, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. So we're going to take a detour from Second Samuel and PT will pick that up next week, but we'll be looking at the book of Hebrews. So, if you want to turn to that in your Bibles, and that's the book of Hebrews that's found in the New Testament, and it is a, a particular letter. It's a New Testament letter, and it's written during the time of the early church, after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And within this book, we find what some will call the Great Hall of Faith. It's essentially a chapter-long celebration that lists out some of the great men and women of faith found in the Old Testament. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, and then what we'll briefly look at the beginning of chapter 12, because essentially chapter 11 lists out this great hall of faith, and then the beginning of chapter 12, we kind of get an application of it. It's like, okay, here were these great people of faith, and then kind of beginning of chapter 12 is, okay, in light of that, this is how we should respond. In light of that, this is how we shall live. For sake of time, we won't read every single verse of chapter 11, but in your own time, I would encourage you to, to have a look. But we will, at points, um, bring little things, bits out. So keep your fingers at Hebrews 11. And just looking right at the start, it says this. And uh, it'd be good if I actually had it ready in my Bible as well. So. So in chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, or it reads, it says this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. First two verses, the author firstly begins by telling us what faith is. And the subject of faith is huge. And, and we see it mentioned throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. Faith is not just the subject of this chapter, but I would even say faith is somewhat the, 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 kind of the main theme, one of the main themes of the whole Bible. It's one of the pillars of what it means to be a Christian. So it's kind of important that we actually know what it means. So he begins by explaining it, and he kind of on this occasion describes faith as kind of two parts to it. And the first bit he says, and he says the substance, or some translations will say, so the substance or assurance or realizations of things hoped for. So that's the, the first kind of part. And then the second part to that, 
It says the evidence, or some translations will say confidence or conviction of things not seen. Essentially, any time you have a conviction regarding something you can't see, you're exercising faith. And likewise, when, uh, when, uh, out of, when you are convinced that something you've hoped for or have been promised will come to pass, likewise, you're demonstrating faith. When we begin to understand faith in these terms, we begin to see faith is not something which is limited just to the religious. But rather, we all, every one of us, have faith in something. There's always going to be something that we cannot fully see or something that we are hoping for, something which, if we have a conviction in something we cannot see, we, that, that, that is faith. Let me give you an example. Take the subject of life after death. Okay? To believe that we cease to exist after death is to have a conviction about something you've not seen. Okay? So unless you've actually died, you've not seen what exists afterwards, therefore you have a conviction about something you've not seen, and that is faith. Thankfully, that's not the conviction we have as Christians. Our conviction is there is something after death, and for those who put their faith in Christ, that something is something to look forward to, something which far outweighs what we're living in today, and we'll look at that a bit later on, but think about it, faith it's not just an issue. It, it, faith is for is everybody. Everybody has faith. The question is not, do I have faith? The question is, what do I choose to put my faith in? Faith in and of itself is not the answer. But rather, it's what you put your faith in. It's what you put your faith in real. It's what you, you put your faith in true. And all these men and women that we'll read about in a second, not only have faith, but they have faith in the same person. They have faith in the same and the true living God. And think about it. Look back to David. It was, it was not David's faith that allowed him to defeat Goliath, but rather it was the God that he put his faith in that allows him to defeat the giant. And look at this, he said it even himself in 1 Samuel 17, 37. I'll just briefly read it. He says this, Moreover, David said, and this is before David enters the battle, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David acknowledges, no, 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 no. It's not just that I have faith. It's not that I'm a great man of faith, but, the, but it is who I have faith in. And, and it's because I have faith in God, the living God. That is why I, he is going to deliver me. And that is why I'm going to defeat Goliath. And as the writer of Hebrews continues, we see time and time again throughout history the impact of what happens when ordinary, broken, sinful men and women like you and me decide to put their faith and trust in God. And that is a continual theme throughout this text. Because you'll see in every situation where there is this great man or woman of faith, they also, just like David, were broken people, sinful people, people who messed up and made mistakes, and yet it was through faith they received salvation, just like us, and it is through faith that God begins to use them. But then continue on in verse 3, and he begins essentially the timeline of faith, and he begins why at the beginning of everything, which is creation. He says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, 
so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So, okay, the author begins his hall of faith with creation. And I like the way the ESV translates it. He translates it this way in the ESV version. It says this, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And the next bit, So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The issues of our origins and the issue of creation is always one of faith. We weren't there in the beginning, therefore we have a conviction of that which we have not seen. And this is true, whether you believe we are a cosmic accident that came out of nothing, or if you believe the beautiful truth that this verse proclaims, that we were no accident at all, but we are a deliberate creation of an intentional God who loves us. This is what we believe and proclaim as Christians, that God, by his very word, created everything that we see today. We were created for reason, for purpose. And it is as we get to know this God, our creator, that we begin to understand what life is really all about. And we've all had that question. We've all had that question in our minds. What is life all about? Why am I here? Is there a reason? Is there a purpose? And there'll be some in the world that say, no, you're here by accident. No, you don't have no purpose. No, you just live your life, do what you want. But actually, we have a God who says, no, I have a purpose for you. I have a design for you. I have, I have dreams and aspirations for you. I have purpose for you. Your life means something. And it is this God of immense power, this God of immense love, that the following men we read of, and women, choose to put their faith in. And if you look through the verses, you will see this repeated pattern. And we won't go through all of it, I'm afraid, cause, but in your own time, do have a chance to read through it. But it says, we say, by faith, Abel, and by faith, Enoch, and by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Sarah, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Jacob, by faith, Joseph, by faith, Moses, and can on and on and on. And I think you kind of get the pattern, right? There's an emphasis there that you cannot miss it, and that emphasis is faith. This is all about faith. But why, why is it so important? Why is faith so important that we have this particular chapter, which is like faith, by faith. These guys did this, and these guys did this. It was by faith and by faith. And the reason why faith is so, so important is because without it, we cannot please God. Look at verse 6 in that chapter where it says this, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you want to know what pleases God? Have you ever asked, that question to yourself, or even better yet, have you even asked God that question? And have you imagined what he would say? Well, God has given us an answer, and that answer is faith. A faith that trusts in God. A faith that comes to God. And obviously, to have faith in God, you first have to believe he actually exists. That's kind of the starting point. But not only that, but that he's also a loving God who rewards those who trust him. And do you believe that? Not just that God exists, but this God is actually a God who, who rewards people, who gives gifts to people, who shows grace to people. It's one thing to believe that 
that God exists. It's another to believe that he desires to reward us. And what is this reward that God gives us? Well, think about it for a second. To reward someone is to give them something that is precious, right? I mean, to reward someone, if you gave something that wasn't really valuable, it wouldn't really be a reward, would it? If you got something which wasn't good, which was faulty, or just, just plain wasn't good, that really, that isn't something which is rewarding. Something rewarding is something which benefits us, something which is precious, something which is valuable. So think about this. What's the most precious thing in the whole universe? In the whole of creation? What's the greatest thing in the whole universe? And the answer is God. There's nothing more precious than Him. When God rewards us, it's not primarily through earthly riches and wealth, because there's something better than earthly riches and wealth. All these things are temporary, and they're not the most valuable thing that exists. God rewards those who have faith in Him. He rewards us with the most valuable thing in the universe, and that is himself. Because there's nothing more valuable he can give us. And that's why it's crazy when we come to God, and we're, and we're constantly like, God, and it's not wrong to ask God for things, but when we come to God, we're like, God, I want this, God, I want this, oh God, I love this, God, I want this, God, why can't you give me this, what, God, why can't you give me this? And you can imagine God thinking like, why are you striving after all these things, all these things, and, and all these things, when all these things are temporary, and, and none of them are as precious as me? None of these things are better than me, so why do you want these things over me? But God says, no, I'm not, I'm not just going to get... I mean, God does bless us with things. God does bless us with material things, and, and we should be thankful for that. But God says, I'm going to bless you with something far greater than all these things, and that is myself. And that is simply one word, and that is simply grace. A grace is, is a gift that we do not deserve. The truth is we know what kind of people we are. We're sinners. And we continually turn our back on God who loved us or God who created us. And we, and we, and we see around the world today, our world is a broken world. And, and it's very easy for us to look at the world and be like, well, that guy's doing that wrong, that guy's doing that wrong. But the truth is all of us are doing something wrong. We're all responsible. We all have sin to deal with, which is what the Bible calls it. We all not just hurt ourselves, but we, we hurt the people we care even most about. And for every good deed that we manage to do, we kind of quickly follow it up with countless other wrong and selfish deeds. And David's life reminds us of this undeniable truth, which we've been looking at. He was a great man, but he was also a guilty man. And truth is, we may not have committed adultery and murder, a murder a man like David did, but we are just as guilty. We are just as undeserving as grace. And David isn't alone. Everyone we read in this great hall of faith at moments in their life sin, at moments in their life fail. And you could go through each particular one and you could bring it out. I mean, look, if you go through it, think about it. Think about Abraham, the guy who, who kind of lies about Sarah being his wife and not only one occasion, but twice. We, we, so we see at times he's a liar. And then how about we, we go down to Noah? Noah, he builds the ark. Man, this big triumphant moment. And then you see in the very, in the, in the very next chapter, okay, so Noah builds the ark. He, he saves his family. He saves all the animals. The flood comes and judgment comes. And then the floods come down and then they come out of the ark. They've been saved. Man, it is this big, big moment to cheer. And what happens? 
the guy passes out drunk while naked and his, and his, and his sons have to cover him up. I mean, you, you, you couldn't just make up this of like, come on, Noah, man, you, you got so much right, but then, but then this. And you could go on more and more throughout all those people that we're going to read of Moses and, and Sarah and, and all these people are just like us. And I, and I think that's why God puts those things in the Bible. Why the Bible's so real. God didn't have to put, about, put in the part about Noah getting drunk naked. But he did because he wants us to realize that this guy is just as broken, just as sinful as us. And that's why we're in desperate need of a saviour. We're in desperate need of somebody to come and rescue us. And that is where we find Jesus. Because you see, there is one who would come. There is one who would succeed where we failed. His name is Jesus. Um, because of our sin, we're separated from God. We stand condemned under judgment and we are unable to save ourselves. So this is what God does. God becomes a man. He lives a perfect life. He dies on a cross for our sins. Literally, Jesus in my place. He takes our place on the cross and he takes all the punishment all the shame, all the judgment that we deserved upon himself. It gets poured out on him on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven, so that you and I could be free, so that you and I could be reconciled to God. And this is grace which we receive through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says it this way. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves us. This has always been the case. And this will always be the case. It is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who we look to today. It's also Christ who these men and women of faith look to, although they didn't fully understand it yet. Skip down to verse 13 of our chapter 11. Let me just quickly grab a drink. And it says this in verse 13. These all died in faith, nor having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They embraced them and confessed them, and sorry, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So what does it mean that they didn't receive the promise? Well, firstly, some of these specific promises given to these men, they would not see fulfilled in their lifetime. But however, I think what it's hinting at is that they did not see the ultimate promise fulfilled, and this ultimate promise was Jesus. They lived and died before Jesus came to earth. Ever since the fall, ever since sin entered the world, God has promised us a Redeemer. He's promised us a Saviour. And it is in this Redeemer that they eagerly waited. But their longing was not just for a Saviour, but it was also for our true home. They realised this. These men and women of faith that came before realised this, that earth was not their home and that God has for them a better home, a heavenly home, and that is the home for which they longed for. And if you are a Christian, the same is true for us. Earth, this world around us, is no longer our home. We're strangers, 
and pilgrims on this earth. And yet, if we're honest, which home are we truly looking towards? Which home are we really investing in? Which home are we really living for? The next few verses in Hebrews, verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they were called to mind, sorry, if they called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Which home are you seeking? This church, Christians, us as a, as a church, us as Christians, this isn't our home. I want you to let that truth sink in. This isn't our home. How can we continue to try and become more like the world when we've been called to a new home, when we've been called to a better home, we've been called to a heavenly home? Verse 16 says this, But now they desire a better home. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The heavenly country we long for is far, is far, not bar, far, is far better, and far better than a bar as well, but far better than the one we occupy. And look at these promises. When we put our faith in God, when we desire our heavenly home, he's proud of us. It pleases him. He's proud to be called our God when we long for home, our true home. And this home, this far-off country, is one he has prepared for us. God himself has prepared a city for us, you and me. And God's grace goes, goes deeper and deeper and deeper. He doesn't just save us, but he brings us to a new home. And I remember around the time... Um, uh, when my grandma, um, on my mum's side, so my mum's mum was passed away, there was a particular promise um, that I was reading at a time that um, Jesus gives to his disciples in the Gospel of John. I remember even reading it on the morning that I found out that, I found out that she had passed away. And it says this in, in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God and believe also in me. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he says, my, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said this. He says, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going, and, and, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The way to this home is Jesus. And my grandma, a godly woman who loved Jesus, who put her faith in him, finally got to go home. And do you know what the best part of this home is? It's Jesus. Jesus is here. God himself, who, will, who we get to dwell with for all eternity. And at my grandma's funeral, one of the verses chosen was a psalm written by David. And it's a well-known psalm, Psalm 16 and 11. He says, you show me the path of life. 
in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want to know where you can receive life and the fullness of joy? It's found in the presence of Jesus. In this home that he's created, as great as it's going to be, it's going to be free of pain, free of sin. Imagine that. Not having to wrestle with sin anymore. Not actually doing anything wrong. Not hurting people. And, and it's going to be amazing and eternal. But the best thing about that home is who lives there and who we get to live with. And that is Jesus. And it's in his presence there is life and fullness of joy. And we can begin to experience that life and joy even now. And one day we will finally experience it to its fullest when we finally get to be with him. And then the author continues, back to Hebrews, down the timeline of faith of men and women, and each with their own story of faithfulness. And, but there's one that particular that, that stands out, because they're the last person you would think would be included. Check this out. Verse 32, 31 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Rahab, a Gentile woman who was a prostitute, makes the list of faith. We forget how radical that statement is. Firstly, she wasn't Jewish. Secondly, she was a woman and such at the time... And even today in some parts of the Middle East, you know, women, at that, especially at that point, but even today, were treated like second-class citizens. But not, but not only that, so not only was she a Gentile, so not Jewish, and a woman, but she was also a prostitute. And how does she make this list? She makes this list because of one thing and one thing alone, faith. And it doesn't matter how dark and sinful our past is through faith in Christ he can make us clean he forgives us of our sin all of it and he offers us new life we don't have to go back to that life of sin and your sin is not big enough that it can't be conquered by the grace of God his grace is always bigger his grace is always stronger and then the list continues we read this in 32 it says this what more shall i say for the time would sorry for the time would fail me to tell of gideon and barak and samson and jephthah also of david and samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms worked righteousness obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Notice the key word, through faith. It is through faith in God that these men and women accomplish such great things. It was not because of their strength, but rather because of God's grace working in them despite their weaknesses. It is the trust in God that brings about all of their great victories. But it is also the trust in God that enables us to endure great suffering too. 
read the next few verses because those 32, 34, I'm like, yes, man, these guys, by faith, they conquered this and they did this and they did this. But then we read these next two verses as well. It says this, women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials trial of mockings and scourgings and yes and of chains and imprisonment they were stoned and they were sawn in two were tempted were slain with the sores they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute afflicted tormented of whom the world was not worthy they wandered in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth faith in Christ does not mean the absence of pain. Sometimes God's grace is shown in delivering us out of the storm, but sometimes and more often than not, his grace is shown by taking us through the storm. And David's life is a great example because in, in, in his life we see both. Yeah, We see the immediate defeat of enemies like Goliath. But we also see God's sustaining power over the many years as he's on the run from Saul. God works in both. And if anything, he he is often given more glory in the latter. It is when you lose everything and you still choose to trust in God that, that it shows to the world that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is more precious than anything. And God thinks extremely highly of such men and literally saying that they're not worthy for this world. He says, man, such people who by faith trust God, even through immense suffering, says, man, these are the guys I'm I'm trying to highlight here because, man, this world is not even worthy for them. And he continues, and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They received a good testimony. By, because of their faith, they could hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And once again, we're reminded that they did not see Jesus physically become a man in their lifetime. And that is the something better he's referring to. For us, we have the physical life, death and resurrection of Jesus to look back to. We, in some ways, get to see kind of the completion of what they were longing for, what they were putting their trust and faith in. And that is the end of chapter 11. That's as as we come to the end of chapter 11. And in light of all these things, how should we respond? In light of the faithful that came before, like David, like we've seen over the, the, the last few months as we've been going through the life of David, what should we do? How should it affect us? And as we read these stories of faith, what change should it bring about in us? And the author gives us the answer at the beginning of the next chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, literally, if it's on the next page, turn the next page, but it's literally the next chapter, so the next bit down, chapter 12, and he says this, Therefore, We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, 
the author and the finisher, or some translations will say perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. This is a beautiful, it's a richly packed text. So let's literally just begin to briefly unpack it. Firstly, therefore. And you've most likely heard the saying before, but it's quite helpful to remember. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And to do this, we look at what's come before. And we've already kind of gone through what's come before. Chapter 11 has been before. So everything that we've just been looking at, he says, because of these things, because of these men of faith, this is the result. This should be our response when we read about David and Moses and and Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and so forth. This is how I should respond. This is the result. And firstly, this is what we see. The result is that we have an audience. It says, since we, who's the we? That's us. So since we, that's us, that's Christians. As we Christians, we are surrounded by witnesses. These witnesses consist of the people we read about today. They're literally watching our lives. They're seeing our successes, our failures. The moments where we struggle to follow God, the moments where we're faithful to obey God. And God wants us to know this truth for a reason. He wants us to know, hey, these men of faith, they're witnessing what you're doing and I want you to know this. I want you to know this truth because there is power in an audience. Let me try and explain it to you. As a musician, it's one thing to play to an empty room and it's another thing to play to a packed concert hall. You play differently. And that was my experience when I was at uni and kind of studying music. In my first two years, we had to do an end-of-year recital and you do your recital, you have to pick a number of pieces to play, but you do it literally in an empty room with three with free examiners, so three teachers you know who are examining you. And it's quite a daunting experience. You walk in, kind of, hello, 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 and it's literally, you start with your band, and they're like, ready? We're ready. And then you kind of go. And it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a, a performance, is, and it's very hard to engage them because they're literally just kind of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the other guy's just kind of like, and then the other guy's like taking a nap, you know. It's, just, it's, it's a very intimidating situation, like, man. But then when it came to my third and final year, so my final, very final recital, you get to invite people to come and watch. So think about it, I went from, playing, doing my final recital in an empty room to three examiners to my very, very final recital, which is in a room which is full of an audience. And in that audience are my friends and family who are rooting for me. They want me to do well. And they're like, man, I get to see what he's been working on all these years. You know, has he actually improved at all in playing music? And they get to see it. And and you begin to see it's a much more inviting uh, environment. And you play differently. And I know I play differently. you, You seem to up it. You seem to go an extra level. You seem to give more of yourself. You seem to play better. And... And if anything, in, the, in, in that right environment, you begin to not only enjoy the moment, but you begin to flourish as well. The power of a crowd has the power to inspire us, especially when you know that crowd is rooting for you. And here he says that you're surrounded by these great witnesses, these guys, great men of faith who have come before, and they are spurring you on. They want you to do well. 
They want you to succeed. And I think about it, even in sport, we once again see the power that a crowd has to inspire us. I used to play football when I was younger for a, like a little Saturday team and, and when I was in secondary school. And there was one particular game, which I don't think I'll ever forget. It was in my last year um, of playing for a Saturday league team. Give you a bit of background. Um, we weren't the best of teams, um, per se. We were called the Vikings. Quite a cool name. And we were all red. I had a red kit, red kit, which was quite cool. But basically, the season before, that was our best season. We like won the league, came second in the cup. I came home with like two trophies, two medals. I'm like, bam, this is awesome. The following year, half our team or 90% of our team got too old, so then they leave, and we have a bunch of new kids start. And literally, we were terrible. Like, we couldn't have got any more worse. We were literally awful. And it was my final year, and I'm like, man, we are awful. And, you know, you know, there, there are some people you have to be like, oh, bless that kid, man. I'm like, no, by no means, I'm not the best athlete, but there were some kids there. I think one kid in particular, I remember, and I'm like, man, this guy is terrible. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Yeah, that moment we come, it's like, oh, man. Anyway, so we are literally terrible, and we're losing all our games. See, every single game. And then there's this one match where we face up against these guys called the Motormen. And they were kind of top of the league. These guys were awesome. They wore green, and they were just like the league leaders. They were the best team. And it was kind of a little bit of a rivalry between us because they were kind of the team to beat. So think about it. You've got the best team, and you got us, the underdogs. And it really was a David and Goliath moment. We were David. They were Goliath. And we basically start the game, and we start playing it. And there's not really many people watching. But we start, we're giving a good go. We're kind of holding our own. We're playing better than we usually do, and we're kind of standing toe-to-toe. And people begin to notice. And as people begin to come, because they want to watch other games as well, but they're watching our game, and they're beginning to like, actually, the crowd is then starting to get behind us because we're their underdogs. People want us to win. So then every tackle, people are beginning to cheer, and when we come close to scoring, they're going like, ooh, and they're kind of cheering us on. And it begins to change how you play. At that moment, we're now full on, we're now full in, and we're going for it. And not only are we going for it, we're enjoying it. We're like, man, we're on it. The crowd is inspiring us. We're going forward. We're going for it. And it completely changed the way that we play. And I think one of the reasons that the Lord wants us to know that these guys are watching is because he wants to give us that same inspiration. That same inspiration of, come on, guys, you can do it. Come on, guys, I'm cheering you on. They're cheering us on. They're wanting us to do well. And I've always wondered, what are they thinking when they see us? Have you thought about that? What are they at? What's going through their minds as they're looking down and like, and they can see what we're doing, right? This is what I would imagine. I think if we were to hear what they were saying, or if they could actually kind of speak to us, I think they would say stuff like this. Firstly, learn from your mistakes. No, no, sorry, not learn from your mistakes. We'll do that as well, but... Rather, learn from my mistakes. You can imagine David coming down, and there's a guy walking down the road, and then he sees a pretty girl walks past, and as he goes to take a second note, you can imagine David be like, no, bro, lust is not the way. I've been down that path. It doesn't end well. Learn from my mistake. Or Noah, for example, Noah's like, you know, you've had, you've had a couple of drinks, and you're going for that next one. You can imagine Noah just being like, no, don't do that, man. That ends badly. Learn from my mistakes. But I think they also say this. I think they say, imitate what we did right. The things that we got right, imitate that. You can imagine David saying, look, there are some things I really did get right. Imitate that. I reckon they would celebrate our successes in the moments where we actually are faithful to God. I reckon they'd be like, yes, boy." And in the moments when we fall, I think they would tell us to get back up. 
And I think another thing they would say as well is in the most darkest moments, they would say, keep going, I've been there before. So often we think we are unique to perhaps certain situations or we're like, man, I'm the only one struggling with this or I'm the only one struggling with that. The truth is, it's not true. Not only are there others in the same boat as us struggling with similar things, but there are those who have been before. You can imagine David saying, I know what it's like to be hunted. I don't think any of us will maybe know what that feels like, but I know what it's like for people to turn on me. Imagine David coming, I know what it's like for my own son to hate me and try and kill me. I mean, wow. It's like, okay, dude, you've been through some stuff, man. You've been through some stuff. But ultimately, they would, I have no doubt they would encourage us. And they would encourage us to do the very things which we're told to do at the beginning of chapter 12. And the first thing is this. So first of all, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So therefore, so therefore, we're surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses, these guys, who faithful men and women that have come before. Therefore, let us do a number of different things. So quite practical things for us to do. So let us, first of all, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life here is presented as a race. And there is a certain way to run a race. This isn't a sprint. It is more of a long endurance, endurance race. It's a long distance. But think about it. This, even this week, I think it's the London Marathon this week, you will have a number of people, thousands of people, lining up to race, okay? And some of these people will be ready to go, okay? They've got all the gear. They've got the right shoes. They've got the right clothes. They are ready, and they're going to get their personal best, or they're going to try and run it as fast as they can, right? But also amongst that crowd, you're going to have other people who are not running to get the best time. You're going to have the guys who are like dressed up in funny suits, like kind of the mascot suits, or like dressed up as superheroes, or whatever. They're not wearing the right attire. If anything, they are wearing, they have baggage on them. And they're not going to do a very good time in that race. They're not going to run the race very well. And if anything, they're going to struggle to run the race. The reason they're doing it is for charity. But think about it. What are the things that we put on ourselves which are stopping us from running the race? To run the race, you need to be light. That's what I mean. When you see, for example, Usain Bolt, cool guy, really cool guy, he can run fast. Um, think about it. The guy's not running with like a backpack on his shoulder, some jeans, you know, uh, a cap. He's literally just got a vest and shorts. He's like, I'm taking off everything so that I can run the race, so that I can run better. And the first thing is the, the, the author here is saying, look, Take off, lay aside whatever is stopping you from running the race. And he says, as you say, he says, look, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So he distinguishes between the two. There are two different types of weight. There's the weight which is sin, but there's going to be weight which may not be bad in and of itself. There are going to be things which may not be bad things. It may not be sinful, but they may not be helpful for us running the race. So think about what is stopping you from running the race. What is hindering you from following God, from running the race with everything that you have? It may not even be simple, but maybe it's something you need to cast off. Maybe you're investing your time in something which actually, you're like, actually, no, I need to cut down investing my time and invest it in something else. Instead of spending, you know, five hours watching TV, I'm going to actually spend time in the world or spend time with other Christians. Well, instead of doing this, I'm going to spend time invested in Christ, invested in Him, invested in the things that are to come. Instead of just investing all my time, my resources, my money into building my kingdom now, actually I'm going to invest it all in building his kingdom which lasts for all eternity. So think to yourself, what is stopping you 
from running the race? What is holding you down? What's making it difficult? Take it off, lay it aside. And included in that, he says, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Or sin, or another translation will say, entangles us. Sin ensnares us, it entangles us. It stops us from running the race. And, and the thing is, we kind, of, we kind of play sin down, don't we? Because like, my sin's not a big deal. It's fine. No, 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 no. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says about sin. He says that your sin entangles you. Cast it away. Your sin ensnares you. Let it go. Yes, if you put your faith in Christ, you've been forgiven of it. Then why are you holding on to it? It's stopping you from running the race. So take it off. Cut it off. You need to, we, need to, we need to be more ruthless with our sin because we just don't think of it as a big deal. But Jesus says, no, this is a big deal. And you can imagine all those guys that we've looked at, the moments in their life where they look back and they're like, man, if only I'd taken my sin seriously then. If only I'd cut it off then, I would have stopped myself from doing this. Man, you can imagine David being like, man, if I cut sin off at the root here and then before it began to grow, began to grow wow, man, the amount of pain I would have saved myself. And I think the same with us. Cast aside, lay aside anything that is stopping us and sin which so easily ensnares us. Throw those things aside and instead let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a race and it's a long one. It isn't just a sprint. Sometimes I think we wish it was a sprint or we act like it is a sprint. We're kind of like, bam, we run for it and then we realise we cannot keep this same speed for the rest of the time. And, and, and you see that. I remember when I used to do the sort of long distance running at school, you would see that. And, and it's very easy. You see the guys who literally treat you like a sprint, and they're like, bam, they're out the blocks. And then you're like, no, I need to actually do this at a good pace. I need to endure. And then actually it's when you kind of get a bit further along the line when they're kind of catching their breath, and they're kind of like, they can't go more. You've still got the energy to go. The Christian life is one of endurance. It's one which is, is long. And, it, and, and the fact that it requires endurance means it's tough. If it was easy, it wouldn't require endurance, but it's difficult. It requires endurance. And the way in which we endure, the way in which we run the race, the way in which we finish the race, is we, if we keep our eyes on the prize. It says this, looking unto Jesus. He says, I want you to throw aside your sin. I want you to find anything that's getting in the way of you following Jesus. And I want you to follow Jesus with everything that you have. And as you follow Jesus, as you run this race, guess what? The key to running this race well is if you keep your eyes fixed. You keep your sight fixed on Jesus. Why? Well, first of all, because Jesus is the prize. We kind of talked a bit about that. Heaven without Jesus is not really heaven at all. But the main, the main kind of uh, thing which should excite us about heaven, about eternity, is him, being with him. He is the prize. He's looking unto Jesus. Jesus is the prize. That's why we look to him. But not only that, we look to him. We look to him because he's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. He's the perfecter. We can't finish the race without him. We can't complete our faith without him. We are in need of him because he's the author of everything. And as we fix our eyes on him, we remember what he did for us. Because it says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured 
the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to endure. Jesus knows what it's like to feel pain. And the reason he endures it is because there was joy set before him. He was doing it for the joy that would come on the other side of the cross. And that joy was us. That joy was, having, that joy was redeeming us. That joy was saving us. Ah, so when we're running that race, look to the prize, look to Jesus, look to that joy we experience in him and that joy we will experience in him for all eternity. And he says this, and remember, to Jesus, all for the threat of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you want to know where Jesus is right now? He's right now at the right hand of the Father, above all things, above everything. All authority is given to him, and he literally is above everything. And he says, look, keep your eyes on me. I'm the prize. Keep your eyes on me. I'm above all things. Keep your eyes on me, because I have all authority. Keep your eyes on me. This is what we are called to do in light of these great men and women of faith. That just as they kept their eyes, just as they looked ahead to the promise, promises ahead of them, although they didn't even completely understand everything, they looked ahead to those promises, Jesus calls us to look ahead to him. Coming back to the idea of those crowds, the idea of these guys watching us, and this is kind of where we'll bring it to a close today. Coming back to that crowd, I remember... Whenever I play football, whenever there were crowds watching me play football, no matter how big the crowd, no matter how loud the crowd, and no matter who was in the crowd, there was always one voice that seemed to rise above the rest. One voice that seemed to cut through. One voice that no matter how loud or how big the crowd, I would always be able to hear, I would always be able to make out. And as I played football, that voice was always my dad's voice spurring me on. No matter how big the crowd, no matter how loud the crowd, no matter how hostile the crowd or even how friendly the crowd, I would always hear his voice cut through the crowd. He was encouraging me. He was giving me instructions. He was spurring me on. And that's just football. That's just quite a silly illustration. But if my earthly dad does that for me, think how much... Our Heavenly Father does that for us. How our Heavenly Father, along with the other men and women of faith, our Heavenly Father looks down, he sees us running the race, and his voice is the one that cuts through them all. It's his voice that challenges us. It's his voice that encourages us. It's his voice that instructs us. It's his voice that leads us as a loving Father. So as you go away today, and as you kind of think about this week, I want you to think that every time, every time we read through David, every time we read through these guys, I want you to remember that these guys were just like us. They were broken. They were sinful people. And yet, by faith, by faith, we see God doing not only amazing things in their life, but we ultimately see God save them. And that's grace. God gives them the gift of himself. God gives us the gift of himself. So let's pray together.
Father, I want to thank you for this time that you've given us to look back at the life of, uh, briefly to look back at the life of, of David and, and, and to see a man who was known for being a man of faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would be known as men and women of faith. And the only way in which we can do that is to keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, I thank you for the examples of those who have gone before. I thank you for how you purposely put that there to encourage us, to inspire us to run the race well. And as we run this race, Lord, may you give us the strength, because it's only through you we even have the strength to run it. Lord, help us to lay aside all the things that get in the way of us running this race. And then help us to run with endurance and then help us to fix our eyes on you, the author, the, the perfecter of our faith, who is seated at the right hand of God and is coming again to claim us. Lord, may you put in us a desire not for this world but for our heavenly home, Give us an eagerness for this new country, but not just an eagerness for the country, but rather for the one who dwells in the country, and that's you. So, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Lord, help us, empower us to put our faith and trust in you. Because when we do, we will never be put to shame. So, Lord, help us to remember these things, Lord, as we go throughout this week. May you continue to change us, to shape us, and to, to change and stir up our affections for you, Lord, that we would desire to know you more, that we would desire to follow you more, that we would run this race with endurance, with our eyes completely fixed on you. In your name, Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen.